Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History. So welcome back, Great Minds, to the first episode of Season 2. And damn, is it going to be a fun one. Now, I know I haven't really been gone, but it has been a while since I covered a new Great Mind on the show. Witches, beer, Freud, and all that other stuff was a lot of fun. I even had my first of what I hope to be many interviews, but I am enjoying this return to normalcy. So let's get to it. This season, I have a cast of characters in the lineup full of the great deeds and evil doings that they committed on their respective paths to greatness, however great they may turn out to be. I'll be covering all sorts of topics from medieval Spain to World War II, civil wars to civil rights, revolutions, and more. And I have a couple of author interviews lined up to add a nice top-shelf twist to this season, and of course, all of your favorite guests will be returning for shots and a twist of psych. I hope to keep this season light, fun, and hold the F-bombs to a minimum. I guess we'll see how that last one goes. Since we ended Season 1 with one of the most despotic periods in French history, I figured, what the hell, let's start with one of the most liberal, most transformative, most fucking chaotic, that's one, periods in France's long history. The French Revolution. Our first great mind of the season is none other than the hero of two worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette. A man who for most of you is just that one French guy from Hamilton the Musical. However, our Marquis bravely committed his life and service to the democratic cause of American independence and brought to France that same Republican spirit. For many, his legacy is one of uncontested greatness, but do Lafayette's actions hold up to the story, dare I say, fairy tale that is his life? In the end, as always, it will be up for you to decide as we dive into the life and revolutions of, oh god, get ready, Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert de Mortier, who will be henceforth called the Marquis de Lafayette, because who the fuck wants to say that again? And that's too... But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Woo, it's season two. So let's start out with a Hamilton quote. We, oui, mon ami, je m'appelle Lafayette. The man who would become the Marquis de Lafayette was born Gilbert de Mortier. On September 6th, 1757, which is amazing really, as that means that much of his American story happened at a very young age. Lafayette was born in a rural area of central France called the Auvergne, to a French colonel, Michel de Mortier, into one of the oldest noble and military families in France, with ancestors that served alongside Joan of Arc in the Hundred Years' War and others that had served in the Crusades. I don't really care which ones. A young Gilbert seemed bound and determined to make a name for himself as a French officer. Even his mother Marie had a strong military connection with members serving in the King's Musketeers within the royal household. However, Lafayette's early life was one of near-continuous loss. His father died in battle when little Gilbert was only two, and his mother and grandfather would both pass in 1770 when Lafayette was just 12 years old. But his inheritance and privilege would leave the young lord a fairly wealthy man with quite a prestigious name. Still, Lafayette certainly married up. His marriage prospects would place him in the heart of France, our old favorite palace of the Louis XIV saga. Here I am talking about Versailles. 
but military reorganization would stand in the way of this great mind's path to greatness. In 1771, Lafayette found himself in close ranks to some of the most important figures in France, including King Louis XVI himself, while serving in the King's Musketeers. In 1773, he was betrothed to a prominent duke's daughter, Adrian, who was only 12 at the time of their meeting. The two were wed the following year, when she was just 14 and Lafayette 16. Lafayette was to move into his father-in-law's estate in the heart of Versailles. There, he would be welcome at the king's court and even train and ride horses with the future king of France, Charles X. And eventually, his connections landed him a short-lived commission in the Dragoons. But by 1775, word was sweeping across Europe of a full-scale rebellion against the British crown that we know oh too well on DGMH. Of course, here, I am talking about the American Revolution. And on that note, let's turn to today's drink. Of which I need a sip. Oh, <clears throat> oh shit. Naturally, the plan was to drink something French, for obvious reasons, but then I thought that might be the least Lafayette thing I could possibly do. So, I went to the most American thing I could possibly think of, an old-fashioned. But then I started digging, and I found it, the Lafayette, a drink with a dash of history to it that I just couldn't pass up. Damn it, I love the internet, but it really wastes my fucking time. And that's three. So the Lafayette has a pretty interesting history to it. Oddly, it can't be directly traced to its namesake, but instead what Lafayette came to represent, the perfect cocktail of equal parts America and France. And looking at the ingredients, that's exactly what this cocktail is. Three ounces of rye whiskey, today I am using Jack Daniel's straight rye, a half ounce of dry vermouth, which only Manhattan or martini drinkers have on the shelf. Luckily for me, I am both. Here's where we leave Manhattan for Paris. The Lafayette calls for one half an ounce of Dubonnet Rouge, which I had never even heard of before. It's just a dessert wine, but I went ahead and bought it anyways. It's meh, but I needed it for the drink. This cocktail finishes off with a dash or two of Angostura bitters, stir, and strain into your chosen cocktail glass. I have seen this served typically in martini glasses, but you go ahead and do you. The drink's origin was a little harder to figure out. Some sources point to its story beginning in World War I as a way to celebrate American entry into the war in France. Other sources indicate a post-prohibition origin. The drink first showed up in the Café Royale cocktail book, which was published in London in 1937, but the recipe wasn't documented for another decade. Either way, by the end of this episode, I hope you understand why the Lafayette is the perfect name for this Franco-American cocktail. I am going to savor this drink, and I will let you know how it is at the end of the show. Cheers! As we get ready to discuss, to quote the musical, an immigrant we know and love who's unafraid to step in, let's just address a few key points. First, the Marquis de Lafayette wasn't in America until 1777. And second, he really isn't an immigrant, he's more like a leased Frenchman. So many of the fun early songs of the musical featuring Lafayette and Hamilton gallivanting around New York City telling stories of tonight just didn't happen. Sorry to burst your Hamill-shaped bubble. However, I will say that having Lafayette and Jefferson played by the same character was artistic genius. But that should make more sense later. The other issue I want to address is Lafayette's cause, his reason for being in the United States in the first place. 
So Lafayette, like many other French soldiers, had recently seen the easy rise through the ranks of the French military fade away as the King of France fruitlessly tried to trim some fat. And our young Marquis was one of many Frenchmen to look to America as a place to use their, quote, talents, find a claim to fame, and kick some British ass. Which at the time was a very French thing to do, or at least something they tried to do. To understand what I mean here, I would have to dive into the rich history of France's favorite furry friend, the beaver. But but as always, I would love to get into that beaver conversation, but I just don't have time for it right now. For Americans, at the outbreak of the American Revolution, one of the grandest and most important debates was what should come first, an ally or a country? That is to say, should the would-be United States seek out an ally first, or should they boldly declare independence without any guarantee of foreign aid? John Adams believed that no country would take the U.S. seriously if they weren't, in fact, the U.S. So that's what happened. And the would-be government quickly dispatched agents to every major European country that Britain had pissed off over the past hundred years. So basically, they sent agents to every European country. Silas Dean and later Benjamin Franklin were sent to France, and that brings us back to our story. Dean had made a habit of recruiting well-trained French soldiers to help advance America's cause, and every general that came over to America pretty much proved to be useless. So what made Lafayette different? Well, for one, he was pretty much told, no, forbidden from getting involved, and yet he said fuck all and did it anyways, and that's four. But when Lafayette snuck away to America on a ship he paid for with his own money, he was actually dismissed by the United States Congress, who was fed up with French generals that proved to be useless as anything but cannon fodder. I must say that Lafayette was somewhat unique when compared to his fellow Frenchmen, as it seems that America's dreams of popular rule and democracy were right in line with Lafayette's personal beliefs. It appears, in fact, that he did actually believe in America's cause, eventually coming to see it as his own. So like I said, with his own money he bought a ship and sailed across the Atlantic against the wishes of the French king, government, and his father-in-law to join in America's cause for independence, and they outright dismissed him. That is, of course, until he offered them his services for free. Another thing that made Lafayette different was that he, unlike his fellow Frenchmen, actually took some time to learn some English. He also came with a big name in support of his own, Big Benny Franklin. But so far, Lafayette hasn't even met up with Washington, so how did he become America's favorite fighting Frenchman? Which he certainly was. In August 1777, our young Marquis finally encountered the one man that could make decisions, George Washington, who was pretty much instantly smitten with our young charismatic great mind. The two apparently bonded over the fact that they were both Freemasons. Lafayette, unlike every other Frenchman that served with the Americans, also seemed to defer to Washington once saying, quote, I am here to learn, not to teach, a comment made while viewing the depressing status of Washington's military encampment. They became extremely close over the course of the war in a similar fatherly way that Hamilton and Washington did. But I must interject my disdain about the idea that Hamilton is in any way responsible for introducing the two. Nothing I read pointed to that, leaving us with yet another Lafayette fallacy of the Hamilton musical. But now I find myself wondering what the hell any of this has to do with Lafayette's greatness. Not so much, or does it? Of course it does. Looking at Lafayette's American military exploits, he seemed to have mixed results on the battlefield, nonetheless earning Washington's respect and confidence. Lafayette's first military campaign was the mess that was the Battle of Brandywine in September 1777, where he was shot in the leg, but he did successfully rally troops in retreat. 
likely saving many lives and no doubt learning from the master of all retreaters, George Washington. Over the next year, he would win battles of only mild significance, and he would stand by Washington's side for at least part of the dreaded winter at Valley Forge, and the even deadlier Conway Cabal to replace Washington with that idiot Horatio Gates. As the war progressed, Lafayette proved to be every bit the tactician that Washington was, and here I primarily mean he could pull off a damn good retreat. After narrowly escaping capture at Barron Hill, Lafayette was able to lead a successful, oh let's call it escape, from Newport, Rhode Island. And of course, he managed not to shit the bed at the Battle of Monmouth, although his role in the battle doesn't seem to read as heroic as the musical makes it out to be. Instead, Lafayette lauded Washington for his command in the battle, saying, quote, I thought then as now, I had never beheld so superb a man as George Washington. During all this time, Lafayette also served his most important role as an intermediary between the upstart American government and France, a role that would prove to be crucial. A lot of factors went into the Franco-American alliance that, in my opinion, turned the American War of Independence into a French war for American independence. Both Benjamin Franklin and John Adams had been dispatched to France to negotiate an alliance, but Lafayette's role was a little more abstract. In 1779, our Marquis returned home to make real on the promises of French aid, which by this point had been a little less than fruitful. This act actually almost got him arrested for violating the king's initial orders not to leave France in the first place in fear of seeing France tangled up in this Anglo-American rumpus. But France was entangled now, so what can you do? Actually, Lafayette's exploits in America had crossed the pond long before he did, and his celebrity status seemed to follow him to France. In essence, the king likely couldn't arrest Lafayette even if he really wanted to, which I am unsure he did. But Lafayette is so the unsung hero of the Franco-American alliance. He pushed France to invade Britain, worked with Franklin to secure the 6,000 soldiers that would serve America's cause under the leadership of the Comte de Rochambeau, and is said to have been essential to the establishment of successful trade relations between the two nations. After witnessing the birth of his son, George Washington Lafayette, our Marquis returned again to America in 1780. Towards the end of the war, the Marquis de Lafayette certainly had his moments of glory, no doubt contributing to his undying celebrity status in American hearts. Moving south, he worked with Baron von Steuben to bring an abrupt end to Benedict Arnold and later Bannister Tarleton's raids on Virginia that nearly resulted in Thomas Jefferson's capture. Later working with Mad Anthony Wayne, Nathaniel Green, and other big revolutionary names, he forced General Cornwallis's troops to retreat into Yorktown, and from Malvern Hill, Lafayette's forces ensured that the British could not leave the site by land, thus beginning the Siege of Yorktown. Lafayette's military and diplomatic exploits in an effort to secure American independence are both a little surprising and odd. It is hard to figure out why this young, enlightened Frenchman was so willing to eagerly take on someone else's cause. He didn't do it for France, he may have done it for glory, but he certainly did it for America. When he returned to France, he helped in the negotiations of the Treaty of Paris, and he worked with French ambassador Thomas Jefferson to secure very favorable trade rights for American merchants in France, which would help in reducing America's debt to its ally. Lafayette was essential in restoring America's faith in France in the early days of the war, and he was even more essential in building French trust in the possibility of a patriot success. Lafayette's friendship with Jefferson was the real-life relationship that Lin-Manuel Miranda portrayed between Hamilton and Lafayette in the musical. 
He left Boston in December 1781 as the, quote, hero of two worlds. But how true was this idea? He would be granted honorary American citizenship in several states, and in France he dined with American ambassadors every Monday in his home on Rue de Bourbon. But does that make Lafayette truly the hero of two worlds? I would say for Americans it was a very true sentiment, but Lafayette would have to walk a long and rocky road to hold on to that title in France. And to figure out why, we must go into the nearly endless void, the confusing abyss that is the French Revolution. Jumping back to Hamilton for a moment, there's a Lafayette line in the musical that has come to really bother me. Quote, I dream of life without the monarchy. Yeah, that's just not true. Did Lafayette love, even maybe prefer, democracy? Sure. Did he think the Ancien Regime was past its prime? Absolutely. But he did not really believe that France could just overnight discard more than a thousand years of history and near-absolute monarchy for the unpredictable will of popular rule. And damn was he right. In the end, the Marquis de Lafayette believed that the people should have the most power, and that the monarch should serve as a sovereign figurehead. Really, a system of limited constitutional monarchy, like the one that existed and still exists in Britain. So let's see how all this played out for our now 30-something Marquis. Now what I am about to do is a gross oversimplification of one of the most chaotic, tumultuous, downright confounding periods in French no world history. The French Revolution. And for our marquee, that pretty much means the whole damn thing. From burning royal bones to guillotining heads, the Palace of Versailles to tennis courts, Bourbons to Robespierre's to Bonaparte's and back to Bourbons, and finally Orléans, Lafayette somehow lived through it all. In many ways, he was the heart and spirit of the French Revolution. It's one true consistency. Actually, I would say that's exactly what he wanted to be. But as it turns out, he wasn't what France in revolution always wanted. I know that I can't cover it all, and some of my oversimplifications may even seem like errors to some. They aren't. There are podcasts that dedicate entire seasons or even shows to this pivotal point in world history. One fellow podcaster spent 54 episodes on the French Revolution, and that didn't even include the second wave of it that followed in the 1820s and 30s, which I also have to tell. The reality is that from 1789 onward, France has pretty much been in a damn near constant state of revolution and or war. So buckle up, dammit, it's time to look at the French Revolution, and for that, I am definitely going to need another glass of this drink. So, short version. 1789 Paris, France. La merde a frappé la ventinalateur. That is to say, all hell is breaking loose in France. The French treasury is drained. Lata c'est broke. The people are hungry and overburdened. To quote the musical, France was a powder keg about to explode. And Lafayette would not be throwing away his shot. But how did France get into this mess? Maybe in part because they racked up massive debts fighting America's war with Britain. A uh, yeah, but also weak and very selfish, ignorant leadership. A state that was so very blind to the plights and struggles of its people that they didn't even see revolution coming. A monarchy almost pitifully naive. Please remember though, this is an episode on Lafayette, not the French Revolution, not the American Revolution, so we are going to try to stick to the stuff Lafayette witnessed or took part in directly, as that is what will most contribute to his greatness. Like I said, 1789, shit, fan, mess. 
The treasury was empty, hungry, poor women are marching on Versailles Palace in October for far more than Halloween candy. The king was left with no option but to call the estate general, and that went about as well as you might have guessed for this Louis, who was nothing like our Louis of season one. But let's look at this estate general for a second. When kings find themselves in dire straits, they are typically forced to turn to the one group they don't want to for help. The people. The assembly. What English people call the parliament. What Americans call Congress. Or what the French call la parlement. Really, though, we mean something bigger, a collection of all the people from every caste of society. In France, this meant summoning the Estates General. Like I said, a lot to explain and discuss. Short version, there are three estates in France. Those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Clergy, Estate 1. Nobility, Estate 2. Every other fucking soul in France, Estate 3. A.K.A. the third estate. The taxed the group that propped up the king, his little lords, and the French church. Don't have much time to say more, and like I said, we need to stick to our Marquis story, which intersects with about 80%, if not more, of the revolutionary period. To get into the mistreatment of the Third Estate would be an endless saga in itself. The Estates General was opened in May 1789, and within days the various estates had proven their inability to do one thing, work together. The nobles and the clergy tried to undermine voting power of the Third Estate, so the Third Estate just broke ranks. To his credit, Lafayette actually pushed for a, quote, head vote that would have given the Third Estate a great deal of power. Remember, Lafayette would find himself situated firmly in the Second Estate, even if his heart was with the Third and by mid-June, the Third Estate had banded together to form the National Assembly, welcoming the clergy and nobility to join them as a sovereign governing body, the former joining gradually, the latter a little more on the fence. By June's end, however, many high-ranking nobles, including Lafayette himself, had joined the National Assembly. The purpose of the National Assembly was to bring together the three estates with equal say and power, power that had been previously denied to the majority of the French people. The king, of course, disavowed them and ordered the assembly disband. Those loyal to the king decided to prevent the National Assembly from meeting in the Estates General, and the National Assembly promptly said fuck all, went to a nearby tennis court, and signed the Tennis Court Oath, refusing to disband until a constitution was ratified. So what happens next? Lafayette convinces the Assembly to adopt the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, that our Marquis actually worked on with our old friend Thomas Jefferson. The two became extremely close during Jefferson's tenure, quote, kickin' ass as the ambassador to France. Like the U.S. Declaration, this one has cemented itself into the foundations of modern human rights. Then comes July. And by the way, I don't know if you heard, I had another F-bomb in there and I've actually lost count. On July 14th, the Bastille is stormed, and the following day Lafayette quickly found himself near the head of the National Assembly, being the natural choice to head up the National Guard. His duty? Protect the king, keep the peace, safeguard the ideals of the revolution. The National Assembly has declared itself in permanent session, the tricolor flag was born of Lafayette's genius mind, his declaration was approved by the Assembly in August, the King refused it in October, Lafayette was reluctantly at the helm of the March on Versailles, the King and Royal Family were forcibly moved to Paris, Lafayette was forced to suppress riots in Paris and the surrounding areas as the, quote, Day of Daggers unfolded in which the nobility loyal to the King rose up to try and free the King from the captivity of the National assembly by storming the Tuileries Palace in the heart of Paris, where the Louvre is today. And they did this with a bunch of tiny little daggers. Smart. 
This greatly weakened the king's position with the upstart government. The king himself actually had to intervene to order the nobles to lower their weapons. And this is where things start to go really bad for the king, who was basically a puppet on a horse... On <laughs> on horse arrest? Who was basically a puppet on house arrest from 1790 onward in a place called the Temple, a fortress that once housed the Templars killed by the French king, which was now home to a French king that would face a very similar fate. Moving towards the king's final years, which would be equally tumultuous for our Marquis, like many of the highest-ranking French nobles, the royal family thought it best to flee Paris and France outright, accurately seeing the writing on the wall. The so-called Flight of Varennes was nearly a success, as the king almost escaped captivity, and actually got Lafayette branded, quote, a traitor by radicals like George Danton and everyone's least favorite political French asshole Maximilien Robespierre. I fucking hate that guy. Is that six? This is a perfect time to swing back to that point I made earlier about Lafayette being somewhere between a moderate Republican and a liberal monarchist. This stance cost him dearly as radicals grew increasingly powerful in the new French government. This failed flight made Lafayette look a little bit like a royalist, but things were about to get even worse for the king and the Marquis de Lafayette. The new and ever-changing French government had decreed that the king would keep his throne but as a limited constitutional monarch. But this greatly angered the more radical factions that gathered on July 17, 1791 to symbolically petition for the abolition of the monarchy. A crowd more like a mob of tens of thousands of people actually lynched two men that were accused of treason and espionage, and the mayor of Paris actually declared martial law. This chaos required action, and Lafayette rode onto the scene at the head of the National Guard, ordering his men to open fire on a crowd killing nearly 50 Parisians. This singular moment just about killed Lafayette's political career as a revolutionary, and it opened the door for more radical elements of the revolution to seize power. Skipping over some veiled attempts by Lafayette to counteract the radical Jacobins, our Marquis worked to prepare the army for an impending war with Austria. Foreign powers by this point had decreed that if any harm came to the Bourbon monarchs, that Paris would be burned to the ground. In the meantime, he continued to protest radicals in the French government, even calling for them to be put down by force if necessary. A bad move. When giving a speech before the assembly, Lafayette denounced once and for all the radicals in the French government, who in turn called him a deserter. Robespierre had him branded a traitor. Effigies of Lafayette were actually burned in the streets of Paris. The French Washington was no more. Paris had turned against him. George Danton had issued a warrant for Lafayette's arrest. At that point, Lafayette fled the country, hoping to escape to the United States by route of the Netherlands, but instead was captured en route by Austrian forces. Lafayette's imprisonment and exile left Paris in a chaotic state. King Louis and Queen Marie Antoinette would be executed in the following months, and a true terror would ensue. Under the direction of the Committee of Public Safety and Robespierre's leadership, the reign of terror was witnessed to nearly 17,000 official death sentences, all carried out between 1793 and 1794. These witch hunts continued after Robespierre's death, and another possible 10,000 people would die in prison without being given a trial. It seems the Hamilton song was a little more accurate than I imagine it was intended to be. The unrest in France truly did lead 
to anarchy. And everything Lafayette feared most about Republican rule in France came to pass. If I screwed up the timeline or language anywhere here, I apologize. The French Revolution is, in my opinion, a total mess, a shitshow, a maniac's masterpiece. And I really only care about Lafayette right now. And I think this is a perfect moment to move to our first moment of the margins of season two as we are going to discuss the story of the forgotten Lafayette, of his wife, of Adrienne de Lafayette. I don't always like to just cover the spouses of the great minds I cover. I certainly wasn't going to cover Peter, Catherine the Great's husband. He sucked. I try to find someone unique or different from the story, but sometimes the wife is so forgotten, so marginalized, so important in the story that I just can't help myself. And Adrienne de Lafayette certainly is one of those people. Born November 2nd, 1759, Marie-Adrienne Francois de Nolay was the fifth, oh I know I pronounced that all wrong, was the fifth of six daughters born to Jean, Duke of Nolay, a high-ranking French military officer and noble who only escaped the guillotine himself during the terror because he was serving his military duties abroad. Adrienne was arrested by Robespierre during Lafayette's exile and sentenced to death. Her life was only spared thanks to the efforts of American ambassador to France and future president James Monroe, and more specifically, his wife, Elizabeth. They would also do the same for American author and, believe it or not, French revolutionary, common sense author Thomas Paine. Not wanting to see Franco-American relations deteriorate, Robespierre had no choice but to acquiesce to Monroe's requests. But Adrian would have to watch as several of her relatives face the guillotine in the terror. Moving back in time for a moment, at the young age of 12, Adrienne was betrothed to the young Marquis de Lafayette, and the two would marry when she was only 14. They developed a strong bond and a love for one another that was rare to this period. One historian notes her husband flourished under her constant attention because he could always rely upon it. She was largely responsible for securing Lafayette's return to France after his exile, as well as recuperating their wealth and estates in her husband's absence. She used her position in French society, as well as her pedigree and husband's fame to advocate for social change. She called for the education of women, and she actively combated the slave trade. Although I do not think Lafayette's ego was so great, one historian notes, quote, her selflessness was a stark contrast to Gilbert's own ego. I would say that her selflessness did curb Lafayette's less than likable sides, and as Jefferson put it, his canine appetite to be liked. Her life was one of pure chaos, and like her husband, she successfully navigated every tumultuous turn, even if the Lafayette family did cut it pretty close every now and again. Her story will parallel her husband's following his return to France, which I will cover shortly. Adrienne's story, however, came to an earlier end than our Marquise, as she died on Christmas Eve, 1807. Hers is a story not to be forgotten or overshadowed by that of her husband's. As one historian notes, Adrienne was born a woman of her time, but she matured into a herald of female empowerment that was slowly recognized over the next two centuries. Moving back to our marquee, we last left Lafayette in jail, which is a bit disappointing and not very hero of two worldsy. But he has to get out, right? Of course he does. That would be the most tragically boring end to a great mind story. So how does Lafayette find his way out of exile and captivity? Short answer, his wife. But to truly answer that, we must turn to another great mind for another day, and try our very best not to fall down a massive, albeit short, rabbit hole. Because the man who finally secured the Marquis de Lafayette's release from an Austrian prison 
is none other than Napoleon Bonaparte. So Americans tried, Adrian certainly contributed, but only Napoleon succeeded in securing the release of our Franco-American hero that was falsely branded a traitor of the French Republic, and you would think that Lafayette would have been overly grateful for that, but it just isn't that simple. The French Revolution can never be that simple. You see, one thing that really must be said to Lafayette's credit is his unwavering sense of loyalty to one thing above all else, his cause. A cause from which he never really wavered, the cause of liberty. And Napoleonic France was pretty much the polar opposite of Lafayette's ideal form of government. We won't get into Napoleon's story, save the bits about Lafayette, but in 1799, Napoleon, who was at this point on the road to first consul, and still on his path to absolute power in France, secured Lafayette's release. Again, it came down to Adrian to guarantee Lafayette a welcomed return to France. In 1800, Napoleon restored Lafayette's citizenship that had been stripped away during the days of Robespierre. However, the distrust between the two was palpable. The reality is that Bonaparte feared what Lafayette could be in his France, what his name might still mean, and his citizenship effectively came with the caveat, stay out of my way and out of politics. Napoleon actually came up with a pretty good solution to his problem and fears of Lafayette, send Lafayette away. His plan was to have Lafayette serve as the French ambassador to the new administration, but Lafayette refused the position, fearing his undying love for America would hinder his ability to truly serve France. He also feared what Napoleon's government might mean for France if he left, saying, quote, Bonaparte thinks only of his own ambition, and until now has not found glory in serving liberty. He actually refused to cast support for Bonaparte, saying, quote, I cannot vote for such a magistracy until public liberty has been sufficiently guaranteed. Only then I will give my voice for Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon pretty much spat in the face of everything the Marquis de Lafayette believed in. But during these years, Lafayette instead retired from politics to his estate on Lagrange. That is, of course, until Napoleon met his figurative and then later literal Waterloo. Like I said, we're skipping over a lot of Bonaparte's story, but Napoleon's fall was matched by the slight return of Lafayette on his path to greatness. It's not that I think that the two were enemies, or even competitors. Napoleon might have thought so, but it's just not how it was. They were just so far detached politically that they could not coexist in France. I am reminded of a quote by one of our Frenchmen's South American revolutionary contemporaries, José de San Martín, who after meeting El Libertador Simón Bolívar for the first and only time remarked, quote, There is not room in Peru for both Bolívar and myself. The same is true for Napoleon and Lafayette. There just wasn't enough room in the French government for both to coexist. Their ideas were too big, their actions too bold, their beliefs too different. When Napoleon was captured and then escaped his exile, beginning a period known as the Hundred Days, Lafayette rushed to Paris to denounce once and for all the emperor's return in favor of a Bourbon restoration, saying, quote, I have no faith in the conversion of Napoleon, and I saw better prospects in the awkward, pusillanimous ill will of the Bourbons than in the vigorous and profound perversity of their adversary. In the end, it was Lafayette who spoke out against the would-be emperor, saying, quote, 
Who shall dare accuse the French nation of inconstancy to the Emperor Napoleon, that nation that has followed his bloody footsteps through the sands of Egypt and through the wastes of Russia, in disaster as faithfully as victory? And it is for having thus devotedly followed him that we now mourn the blood of three millions of Frenchmen. Our emboldened Marquis' point was accurate, as Napoleon's wars across Europe came at a cost of millions of Frenchmen and millions beyond France. France's borders. Lafayette used his status and position to call for Napoleon's abdication, no doubt swinging popular opinion in Paris against the would-be emperor, and maybe once again towards Lafayette himself. But that is not the end, as the old enemy of the revolutionary period had returned and Lafayette would not sit idly by as French liberties were stripped away by a tyrant of a different name. Before we reach the end of our story, we should also look a little into Lafayette's shortcomings, as just like every other great mind on the show, our Marquis was not without his failings. Jumping to the Hamilton line once again, this time from another member of their little cohort, John Lawrence, he says, quote, "...until those in bondage have the same rights as you and me." And that is certainly a sentiment with which Lafayette strongly agreed. He even went as far as to once say, quote, I would never have drawn my sword in the cause of America if I could have conceived that thereby I was founding a land of slavery. But is it that simple? Of course not. Lafayette was undoubtedly an abolitionist, as was Adrian. He advocated for James Armistead's freedom, he worked closely with French abolitionist societies to combat the slave trade, his declaration was in opposition of the ideas of slavery, but like Jefferson's declaration, it never outright attacked the institution or mentioned it directly. And Lafayette played a crucial role in the abolition of slavery during the French Revolutionary period in 1794. So where did Lafayette go astray? Dare I say it, wrong. In 1785, Lafayette had come up with a plan. Slaves could serve plantations as a sort of tenant farmer, more like a medieval serf or a post-Civil War sharecropper. He believed slaves should be educated and freed. He called for gradual forms of emancipation in France, their empire, and the United States. He even purchased a plantation in a French colony with the idea that he would prepare the slaves for freedom. I don't really have a comment on his plan, as it certainly paints him in a slightly better light than many of his contemporaries, but it also opened the door for one of his biggest failings. He never freed the slaves. Beyond this, when his property and assets were seized during his exile, this included his slaves. And when he was in his most dire financial straits, he actually requested that the French government compensate him for his lost property, including his still-enslaved slaves. Beyond owning slaves in the first place, this is a special kind of dick move and an epic disappointment. But that seems to be the trend for most DGMH great minds. Moving back to Bourbon France and the end of Lafayette's story, we must first return to America. In 1824, Lafayette made a visit to his second home, the United States, where he toured all 24 states, dined with presidents and old friends, and was paraded around the country as a celebrity at the request of President James Monroe. Memorabilia and all kinds of keepsakes from gloves to plates were made, towns were renamed after the Marquis, it was quite the fanfare. The federal government even granted him a large sum of money and a modest estate in Florida. 
Some of you may even remember that it was on this very tour that Lafayette reunited with his old friend from the Revolution, James Armistead. Lafayette had done all he could to help secure James's freedom from slavery, and at this very moment the two shared a warm embrace in a large crowd. On this tour, he even dined with Joseph Bonaparte, who was living in New Jersey at the time, along with other exile Bonapartes. However, Lafayette's return to France would mean a return to revolution. As the restored Bourbon King, his old horse-riding buddy, Charles X, had begun the process of curtailing French liberties and freedoms and was dethroned in favor of Louis-Philippe of the House of Orléans. The Bourbon dynasty had come to an end, and constitutional monarchy firmly established in France. In the so-called July Revolution. Lafayette's dreams seemed to be secured with the establishment of this new constitutional monarchy, but as Lafayette lived his last four years under this new government, he began to see history repeat itself. In reality, Lafayette's final and possibly most successful revolution in France had begun to unravel as the monarch began to censor his people, strip Frenchmen of their voice, and attempt to turn back the clock to a time of French absolutism. Unsuccessfully, I might add, as Louis-Philippe was forced to abdicate in the Revolution of 1848, a revolution that would establish the Second French Republic, a republic that would elect its first president on December 20th, 1848, a man named Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, who would have himself declared president for life and then Emperor Napoleon III of France within three years of his general election. Lafayette would not live to see this unfold, however, as he died at age 76 on May 20th, 1834. Luckily, he didn't have to see France prove the age-old history classroom cliché. If we don't learn from our history, we are doomed to repeat it. In France's case, over and over and over again. To sum it all up, one historian, Mark Leipzig, put it rather perfectly in his book, Lafayette, Idealist General saying, quote, Lafayette was far from perfect. He was sometimes vain, naive, immature, and egocentric. But he consistently stuck to his ideals, even when doing so endangered his life and fortune. His was, quote, a legacy that few military leaders, politicians, or statesmen can match. Well, with all that said, I can finally return to a place I haven't been since the Louis saga, the scale of greatness, as we get ready to evaluate our marquee's leadership, accomplishments, entertainment value. But every great must be subject to the piece of shit curve, even if they weren't really that big of a piece of shit. Ah yes, the triumphant return to the scale of greatness. So as a quick reminder, and news to any new listeners, we evaluate each drink for taste, price, and returnability, and each great mind for their leadership accomplishments and how entertaining their story was. Six points for each category, every three points gets you a crown. And my math fucking sucks, but even I know that that means a drink or great mind can get up to six possible crowns. First the drink, with way too many weird ingredients. In terms of taste, well, this is like a drier Manhattan, which is a little unexpected with the dessert wine twist, which, by the way, Dubonnet Rouge isn't very good on its own. I like a Manhattan. I actually liked this drink a little bit more. It's a really unique take on a traditional drink with a good bit of historical flair. The whiskey I chose was also good, which helped. All in all, I have to give this cocktail a solid four points for taste. I may have liked it better if this Dubonnet had any other use for me, and since it doesn't, that just outright pisses me off. 
It's hard to rate this one for price. I had some ingredients, but I had to buy even more. If you are a regular Manhattan drinker, then it won't break the bank to buy a bottle of Dubonnier Rouge, so it may be worth the $13.99 for a bottle. Cocktails with obscure ingredients make the price point complicated, so I will give this cocktail three points for price. Returnability? Meh. I honestly like the Lafayette a little more than a Manhattan, but I tend to have more Manhattan ingredients, so I am more likely to have a Manhattan than get another bottle of this fucking Dubonnet Rouge. On that note, I can only give this drink three points for not being good enough to make me pursue a somewhat costly return to the Lafayette over a traditional Manhattan. So our first Lafayette leaves the show with only 10 out of 18 points and a low-end four crowns. But let's see how our next Lafayette fares. Moving to Gilbert, our Marquis, the Marquis de Lafayette, a leader he certainly was, but dare I say it, not the best one. On the battlefield, he seemed to have his talents, which he never really demonstrated in France. As a politician, his success seemed to fluctuate, but in the end, he seemed to find himself near the top of the French government, but never with any real power. I can't say that he was the show's best leader, but he wasn't really a hypocrite, he wasn't a tyrant, and he certainly wasn't a Washington. There is something to say for the fact that he didn't lose his head in the French Revolution like most French leaders of his day, so I think it is fair to award him four points for leadership. Modest, but accurate given his shortcomings as a leader of the National Guard in the French Revolution. But he did accomplish a great deal as a revolutionary. He helped to secure America's independence from Britain, and he guided France into revolution even if that revolution was a total shit show. His goal was to create a France for Frenchmen, to guarantee liberty and equality, and I think he actually saw that happen in his lifetime, even if it didn't last. He was an essential piece of the revolutionary era, and its shortcomings aren't really something he can be blamed for. For me, he wanted to see a liberal France under the leadership of a limited constitutional monarchy, and at the time of his death, he lived in such a France. I think Lafayette deserves a great deal of credit for having a better vision for his world, never wavering from it, and in the end accomplishing a great deal. Therefore, I am awarding him four points for accomplishing greatness even if his vision had to travel along a rough road to success. However, his story is like a novel, one of the most entertaining ones I have researched. At points, it's almost too good to be true. Why it hasn't been made into some good movie or TV show, I will never know. Revolutions are messy, the French Revolution more so than others, and that made for a great backdrop. And Lafayette seemed to always be there. America to France, revolution to revolution. I found it to be an incredibly entertaining story to research, and the deeper I dove, the more I was like, what the fuck? but in a really good way, and I hope in the end you feel the same way. I am boldly awarding the Marquis de Lafayette six points for a very enticing tale and dynamic life. Sitting at 14 out of 18 points, will Lafayette hold on to his five crowns? To find out, we will have to move to the piece of shit curve. Looking at Lafayette's career as a whole, I can't say I think he was a piece of shit. He made some mistakes, but he, unlike greats like Jefferson and Washington, seemed to act with the best of intentions, most of the time. I cannot completely ignore Lafayette's ties to slavery and the failed, quote, plan to free his slaves. He was an abolitionist, he did fight for an end to the slave trade, he did call out America for her hypocrisies, but he did have some of his own. For all this, I will be deducting one POS point from Lafayette. And that means that the Marquis de Lafayette leaves the show with 13 out of 18 points, narrowly escaping the scale of greatness with five crowns. I can't say that I am surprised by this. Lafayette was quite the great mind with a hell of a story. 
For me, there is no better place for you to turn for more on the Marquis de Lafayette than Laura Arricchio's The Marquis Lafayette Reconsidered. Dr. Arricchio's work was absolutely fantastic, and I was lucky enough to sit down and talk with her about her book and her insights into the Marquis de Lafayette for this show. Be sure to tune in next week to hear that conversation. And don't worry, all your favorite guests will be returning for some psych and plenty of shots later this month. Be sure to join the Drinks with Great Minds in History Facebook group and follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. There you can get a little bit of DGMH daily. If you love the show, be sure to leave it a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I hope you'll consider supporting the show by joining my Patreon page, where listeners can get access to all sorts of bonus content, including cut segments and some uncut versions of your favorite episodes, and even the occasional bonus episode. Well, that's it. I hope I did our marquee justice. It sure felt good to be back, and I can't think of a better character to cover as our first great mind of season two than the Marquis de Lafayette, a man who was certainly an acolyte of liberty. He stood tall against little tyrants, he never wavered from his ideals, and he somehow kept his head in the French Revolution, which was really fucking hard to do. Even our old friend King Louis XIV found his bones burned. I think that's like 10, so I totally failed on the F-bomb thing. But oh well, I have given you my rating, but in the end, it is up for you to decide whether or not Lafayette is worthy of his title, the Hero of Two Worlds. Either way, let's raise a glass to freedom, to Franco-American friendship that toppled a handful of tyrants in the name of liberty, and to the Marquis de Lafayette. Cheers! Cheers!